And this morning we will be focusing on the final five verses. So verse 20 down to 25. I will read these verses and then I will pray for us. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, And praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. 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 Let me pray for us and then we can um, begin. Father, we Thank you once again that we get to open up your word and learn from it. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you are um, the focus here. Not me, not anybody else, Lord. You are the focus here. So, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you this morning. Help us, Lord, to, um, to be focused on you, Lord. Keep all distraction whether inside this room or outside of it. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we may not just be hearers of your word, but doers, and that we may be faithful to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Imagine you walked into a hospital, right? Imagine uh, maybe like the North um, Middlesex, right? You walk into this place and you have a disease, And this disease that you have is afflicting you, right? It's making you um, hurt. It's painful. Now, you get into line in this hospital, and you wait four, five hours to see someone. And eventually, you see um, someone that can treat you, a doctor, and he asks you a host of different questions. How old are you? What's your name? Uh, When does this disease begin? What's your BMI and so on and so forth. And then eventually he diagnoses your disease, right? He identifies exactly what's happening to you. And of course, this is good news, right? When you have a diagnosis for a particular disease. And then finally, after after the diagnosis, he moves to um, seeking to give you an antidote or cure for your disease. Now, what do you think? would happen if the doctor was wrong or incorrect about your diagnosis or your disease? What would happen if the disease that you thought you had was completely different to the one you actually have? Especially knowing that you have been given something to treat something that's completely wrong. Most likely, you would probably leave the hospital in the worst condition than you actually came in. So because of the efficacy or the effectiveness of an antidote, it's only as good as the diagnosis. 
You have to diagnose the problem first before you seek to cure it or to bring the antidote. Now, in this church of Jude that we're reading, that we have been reading for the last four weeks, Jude is diagnosing the problem with the church. We've already discussed that Jude is writing to a church and that false teachers have crept in unnoticed and he is now seeking to diagnose a problem. The main bulk of the letter is him giving them um, an awareness that what is happening here is that these false teachers have crept in unnoticed. These false teachers are eating and drinking with them in their love feast. They're taking the Lord's Supper with them. They sit next to them in church gatherings. They laugh and joke under the guise of Christian fellowship. But really, they're causing harm to the people of God. They are causing these believers to be unequally yoked. They are pretenders, right? living double lives. And we see here Jude actually primarily attacks their lifestyles rather than their beliefs, right? The beliefs that they have are informed by their lives. They live sinful and, and ungodly lives, and this reveals what they truly believe. They believe that God is gracious, and his grace gives them a license to do exactly what they want. And in the midst of this, Jude exhorts these believers to contend for the faith. Right, the faith that was once delivered to all the saints, that, that has been given to true believers, we are called to protect this gospel and to fight for it. And that's what it means to contend. And when we contend, we push back against the agenda of these false teachers. Now, by doing this, we reveal who these false teachers really are, but also who they've always been. Jude goes on to connect past events and people and historic predictions, right, with present behaviours of these false teaching. We learn that false um, teachers are nothing new. They're, the people of old met the Lord's judgment, and these false teachers will too. Now, in the verses that we've just read, verses five to so verses twenty to twenty-five, Jude now shifts away from false teachers. And now he addresses the true believers in the midst. Right? If, there, if, if in this room there was a mixture of true believers and non-true believers, now he's speaking to the true believers. He is speaking to the beloved. Right? And in this, these true believers, he does three things. He, of course, gives the antidote for false teaching. So we've already expressed that he's already diagnosed a problem. In these five verses, he gives the antidote for false teaching. He reveals the actions that are necessary in administering this antidote. And lastly, he ends with adoration. When the antidote is, is, is given, that leads to adoration. Right, so what is the antidote of false teaching? So the opening verses in verse 20 Jude addresses his believers as beloved. And we've already, of course, spoken about this, uh, that he calls these Christians beloved constantly, again and again and again, through this letter. And he calls these false teachers certain people, or these people. And this letter would have actually likely been um, spoken aloud or, 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 or read at a service. So you can almost picture these false teachers in, in their chairs feeling quite uncomfortable. 
these people, these indirects, certain people have crept in. And here, the word but that we find at the beginning of verse 20 shifts the focus. And now the attention is on the beloved, on those who are true and those who are genuinely seeking to love God and to serve him. And in these next two verses, 20 to 21, the central command of these two verses is that they are to keep themselves in the love of God. We see this this at the beginning of verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But this one command we see, we also see three commands that flow from this one command. Right. So this one command, keep yourselves in the love of God, and what flows out of this command are three other commands. And the way that we obey that one central command is by obeying these three other commands. Right. The first command that we see is building yourselves up in your most holy faith. We've already established the faith is something that is unchanging. Doctrinal truth, the gospel message, right, that never changes. They are to build themselves up in this gospel. Now, being built up kind of gives the image of construction, right, putting one piece next to another, right? This building, I hope, is made up of bricks, and one brick had to go on another another brick. And this gives us an idea of what living a Christian life looks like. The way that Christians grow is by incremental steps, right? We step forward in life growing as believers. When the Lord calls you to himself for the very first time, our lives are marked by radical change and by new birth. But the Lord chooses to have us go through the process of sanctification. It's not instant. God could have created the entire universe instantly, but he did it in six days. And in the same way like us, God could have completely removed our sin, completely straight away, but he chose to do it through the process of sanctification. We gradually become more conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And what Jude is making, what Jude's point here, isn't that we should feel frustrated that we're in this building process, but whether are we still building That's the question that he has for us here. Are you still growing? Have you gone stagnant? Have you put your tools down? The question here isn't that fact that we have to build, but are we still building? There is a sense in which we are trying to continue. And it can be easy for us to coast and to not do nothing and to get used to just coming to church and going through the motions. But what's really encouraging here is that God gives us many times to rebuild, right, to go again. The same way God spoke to the prophet Haggai to rebuild the temple, he calls us to build ourselves up in the holy faith. This building project is a lifelong one, and it means that we can continue to build again and again. So that's this idea of building ourselves up in the holy faith. The second command you see in verse 20 says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, when that comes to mind, people think of all types of things, right? Mainly, I know people who believe this might mean speaking in tongues, right? 
Like praying in the Holy Spirit equals praying in tongues. Now, there's two issues with that um, interpretation, right? In Paul speaking to the um, Corinthian church um, in chapter 12, he asks a host of rhetorical questions. <clears throat> so in verse 29, he says this, are all apostles, are all um, teachers, are, are, do all work miracles, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, and so on and so forth, right? And the obvious answer to the questions is no. Not everyone does these things. So the question here is, if, if Jude is speaking that... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Come on, I got a call. Sorry. Um, if Jude is speaking about um, these, speaking in tongues, that essentially means that not everyone will be able to obey this command. Right? Right? Not everyone can obey this if only a select few can speak in tongues. And regardless of how you define that, if everyone is able to obey this command, or if no one is able to um, speak in tongues, sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, ultimately, we are, we, it's clear that this doesn't mean that we are called to speak in tongues. Or we're not called to obey this command. Also, second reason, it's dangerous to equate a gift with God. The Holy Spirit is not a force or an energy. He is a person and he is a third member of the Godhead. In other words, he's God. He's him. Right. And the impulse to see God's name and God's gifts in the same sentence is very dangerous. Right. When we think of God, the, the being who, who is above all, and when we automatically think of his gifts, that can be dangerous to think about this. So we see the Holy Spirit, the name of God. So what, what, what Jude is doing here, he's separating the false believers from the true believers. We read in verse, nine, verse 19, these false believers are devoid of the spirits. Right? They are not filled with the Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. But these true believers are filled with the Spirit. And they are instructed to pray in the Holy Spirit. And so praying in the Holy Spirit means, in short, is to pray according to the Spirit's leading. It's praying for the things the Spirit leads us to pray for. Right. Romans 8.26 says this, In the same way... The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings so deep. In other words, we are to pray in the power of the Spirit by the leading of the Spirit according to the Spirit's will. I'll say that again. We are to pray in the power of the Spirit by the leading of the Spirit according to the Spirit's will. David on, at prayer meeting on, on Thursday mentioned uh, while well, we actually walked through the Lord's Supper and um, Lord's Prayer. And in that, we are reminded of uh, Jesus' Jesus' example for prayer. He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done. And Jesus in the garden said, Not my will, but yours be done. Right? And so there's an idea that when you pray in the Holy Spirit, you are praying ultimately for the Lord's will to be done, whether in your life, in your church, in your community. Your Holy Spirit is informing all that you pray for. 
So that's praying in the Holy Spirit. We've already established what building ourselves up in the most holy faith. And lastly, we, we see that we are commanded to wait. We read in verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So there is praying, there is building, there's also waiting. So keeping oneself in the love of God and waiting for the return of Jesus aren't mutually exclusive. They can happen at the very same time. When people think of waiting, they think of lazily sitting back um, for someone to do something or someone to come. But the return of Jesus should, the return of Jesus shouldn't provoke our laziness, but it should encourage us to keep going, keeping ourselves in the love of, the, of God. Because we know the outcome is sure. Right? We know that the outcome is sure. We know that Jesus is coming back, and that gives us the freedom to continue to serve him. But when you think of keeping yourselves, keeping yourselves in the love of God, what comes to mind? It, it kind of implies that you're able to be outside of the love of God, right? That we're constantly keeping ourselves in the love of God. It means that if we don't, then eventually we'll be outside of it. I believe the answer can be found in, um, in, in Revelation, which is actually a page or two in your Bibles. So um, chapter two of um, Revelation in verses 2 to 5, we read this. And this is, just for context, this is John um, seeing a vision that he's writing down. Right? And this is a letter that Jesus is sending to the Ephesian church. In verse 2 of chapter 2, we read this. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. This is good news, right? <laughs> this is a lot of good news. And then verse 4 says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, Repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So in short, these Ephesian believers have been contending for the faith. They are calling out false teachers left, right and centre. They are um, exposing this apostle. They're calling out this um, false, um, false something. And they are obeying the command that we see in verse 3 of Jude. They are obeying it. Yet, Jesus threatens to remove their lampstand. Right? And, that, and that is to say that, that Jesus is seeking to remove his presence with them, leading them to a dead church. So in short, this lampstand is the presence of the Lord. And if Jesus was to remove this lampstand from this church, it would lead to die. And this is, I think, challenging for many people who are excited when they want to um, expose false, false, false believers or false teaching. There is people who have entire platforms where all they do is expose false teachers. Right? They get giddy and excited about these sorts of things. And Jesus is actually pushing back against that idea 
that if you do not have love for the people that you're calling out, or you have love for the Lord, ultimately it is fruitless. So let us keep ourselves in the love of the Lord by building ourselves up in our most holy faith, by praying together in the Holy Spirit, and by seeking to contend for the faith, right? loving our neighbour and our Lord, and remembering that ultimately Jesus is coming back to take us all home. So that is the antidote, right? That, that is the antidote for false teaching. And then now Jude, now Jude moves to verse 22 to 23 about the actions that are necessary to take to administer this antidote. It's quite confusing. Jesus, or the, um, Jude here, sorry, is essentially addressing the antidote. He's given an antidote. And like an injection, he's now seeking how can we administer this antidote. So verse 22, we read, have mercy on those who doubt. And this verse can also be translated as have mercy on those who waver. So Jude anticipates that some of these true believers will be negatively impacted by the false teaching that that, that they've experienced. They might either be going through a season of doubts and making them vulnerable to false teaching, or they might actually be enticed by false teaching. They are tempted to leave the faith that was once delivered to the saints. True believers will start to have have itching ears. And though they haven't gone about accumulating teachers for themselves, their ears are beginning to itch. And they are tempted, they are doubting, they are wavering. And they are in a real place of doubt. Now this, I think, communicates something about false teaching. So false teaching, on the surface, can seem quite, quite attractive. I say that because if someone was to come to you and say, if you have enough faith, you will be financially rich and have zero health issues. Right, and it, I'm sure many of us right struggle with real chronic issues or chronic health problems, or some of us um, struggle with financial burdens. And the, and it's not a wrong desire to want these things resolved. But when these teachings are in front of you, that is enticing for some. So these these um, believers that Jude is writing to. They are wavering, right? They are, they're not, they're not there yet, but they're wavering. And in verses 22 to 23, Jude outlines three different approaches on how to uh, deal or, or, uh, or minister to these believers. And all three of these approaches involve showing mercy. Yeah, we, we read mercy on those who doubt. That's one approach. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. That's two and third, and for others, show mercy with fear, showing or having even the garment stained by, uh, sorry, and for others, show mercy with fear, having even a garment stained by the faith. Not faith, um, sorry, I put the wrong. Um, flesh, thank you, thank you. I'm not sure why I put faith there, it's opposite. Um, flesh, 
sustained by the flesh. Now, all three approaches are show mercy, right? We see, of course, the word mercy twice in these uh, verses. And, but we see, of course, saving others, right, by snatching out the fire. So there is a sense of that is a form of showing mercy. So all three of these approaches are involved, are showing mercy. Now, Jude simply doesn't, simply, simply doesn't allow these believers to commend or embrace their doubts. When someone is given, is given doubts about the, the word or faith, um, we're not called to embrace that or commend that. Uh, but also, we're not called to condemn that or beat them over the head with their doubts. But we're called to show mercy. Right? What does mercy look like? It looks like gently walking with them, inviting them to a renewed faith. Now, the question that we, ask, that we, should, ask, we should ask ourselves as a church is do we allow genuine believers to even process their doubts? Do we create environments, right? Environment where a brother or sister who has serious doubts can honestly process or give their doubts? Or do they fear that they will be condemned and declared a heretic? These are very important questions. Many of us, all of us, at some point, have doubted. And including me, many, many of friends and family and people that love the Lord have often been gentle in their dealings with me and gracious to walk me through what the truth of God's word is. Whenever Jesus met a doubter in, in, in the Gospels, he always met them with mercy. We know Thomas, famous example, doubting Thomas, refused to believe in Jesus rather from the grave. He said, I'm not going to believe it until I see him with my own eyes and touch his side, right? And then Jesus appears on the scene, and instead of condemning Thomas, he actually invites him to do it. Yeah, come, touch my side, touch my hands. Right? This is, in a sense, of an invitation to come closer. And biblical hospitality isn't just simply, oh, I'm going to have you over to my house. I think we often simplify this idea of being hospitable. Being hospitable, well, so the actual Greek word here means to love strangers. And it's this idea that you are inviting people, not just to your home, but to your lives, right? To your very heart. And as we are shown hospitality to brothers and sisters in the Lord, uh, and we're inviting them into our lives, this, in this place, actually gives them room to process their doubts. So many times over a coffee or, someone, or over a meal, someone can actually open up and be honest about their doubts about the faith or struggles that they are going through. And in that, we are called by Jude and by the Lord to show mercy. That should be the first approach, show mercy. Mercy should be what they receive. So in short, Jude is simply calling us to be like Jesus. So if having mercy on those who doubt um, implies a form of gentleness... Uh, the action of snatching them out of the fire implies forcefulness. So what happens when someone that you love dearly is willingly in a burning, a burning building? The, the, the flames are spreading and the temperatures are, are rising. The building is starting, starting to crumble. And when all hope is lost, you find yourself breaking down the door 
with its hinges and running straight for that person, without any, without any hesitation, you grab them and pull them to safety. Right. This is essentially what it means to snatch someone out of the fire. While the previous verse um, might be speaking about believers who are doubting, this idea of snatching people out of the fire could also mean non-believers too. Right? All of us have family, family um, members who are not believers. And in this room, we are constantly fighting and contending for the faith, and we're constantly snatching people out of the flames. And this could be family, this could be work colleagues, this could be any type of person. Um, and it also could be believers, right? Believers who are going down the wrong direction, that they are near the flames, and, and that we are called to forcefully grab their hand and pull them out of the flames. There is no time for being polite, or pleasantries, we, this moment requires an urgent and unflinching action. So when we see a brother or sister casually driving themselves toward a cliff or towards a deadly sin, it's not time for passivity. But the most loving thing that we could do is to pull them out of the fire. Now this might mean being blunt with your words, being honest without pulling any punches. It might mean you plainly let, let them know of the danger that awaits them. And this is the most loving thing that you could do. Charles Spurgeon once said, if you drink poison sincerely, you will die. You must not only be sincere, you must be right. It, it matters not how sincere or spiritual one might be in the midst of the fire, because sincerity and spirituality will not fend off the flames. Oh, that we would love others enough to snatch them from the fire. Snatching, snatching someone out of the fire is a topic of love. We can be unloving if we don't snatch people out of the fire, if we let them burn if we let them casually go in a direction of danger. Part of loving our neighbour involves us snatching people out of the fire. And we see, um, lastly, this, um, this, um, this idea of mercy um, with fear. Right. So not only are we to um, show mercy on those who doubt or snatch people but we're also called to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And in this case, mercy is mingled with fear and hatred. So what do we fear and what do we hate? That's very important to establish. We fear because for the one that is shown mercy, we could fall to the very same things that, that they can fall to. In Galatians 6.1, we read, Paul says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be, temp you too be tempted. Having a healthy fear is good. Right? It's, it's healthy. And it should seek us to be sober-minded and alert and watchful as we're seeking to minister to people. If someone has fallen... It's in our right to help them get back up, but you 
also can be very tempted for the same thing. So we're called to fear. Fear the reality that we are weak and we can sin in the same area. But we're also called to hate. We read that um, we are to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, if we are going about and endeavouring, is that a word? I'm not sure. If we're seeking to show mercy and grace to the sinner, we must absolutely hate the sin. Sometimes the phrase love the sinner, hate the sin can be often kind of used in different and bad contexts. But this idea here is that you recognise that the sin in which they are engaging in will destroy them and that's why you hate it. Um, Dane Ortland, I'm quoting the, um, um, Thomas, uh, Thomas Goodwin, um, says this. He hates sin. So, like, so speaking about God's love for us, he says this. He hates sin, God, but he loves you. We understand this when we consider the hatred a father has against a terrible disease afflicting their own child. The father hates the disease while loving the child. Indeed, at some level, the presence of the disease draws out the heart of the child, draws out the heart of, draws out his, his heart to the child all the more. In short, in other words, many of us are, are parents here, right? We have children that we love dearly. If your child had a disease that was afflicting them, that was hurting them, and they grieved this disease, you would absolutely hate the disease but you love your son or love, love your daughter. And it's this idea that if you see a brother and sister engaging in something that is destroying them, we should hate this, um, this sin, but we should dearly love the brother or sister. So we have already established that we, we are to have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire, and for others to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh, right? So those are two things. So we've already established that the antidote involves this and these are the actions that administer this antidote. And lastly, we read in verses um, 24 or 25, I'll read it. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. 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 This is probably one of the most beautiful doxologies in all of scripture. And essentially a doxology, uh, to define what it is, is an expression of praise to God, especially a short hymn sung as a part of a Christian worship service. Right? This is what it means to, this, this is what a doxology is. Right? It's an expression of praise to God. And there are many different doxologies, all of scripture. Ephesians 3.21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can either ask or think according to the power a power of God at work in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. That's one. 
And 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. In uh, Revelation 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and forever uh, and Father, to him be glory and power and ever and ever. Amen. I can keep going. There's so many doxologies where God gets the praise and the honour. The Bible was full to the brim of of doxologies aimed at no one else but God. This phrase, now to him, right? Throughout this entire letter, Jude primarily deals with two different parties, the false teachers and the true believers. But now he lifts everyone's heads up to him, He pushes our faces towards heavenward, towards the Lord. Our aim now is to acknowledge the Lord. He is the only one who is worthy to be praised. Everything he does is praiseworthy. And our praise that we often heap on other people should actually flow back to him. If we are to close our mouths and not praise the Lord, the very stones in this building will cry out in praise. And what does Jude ground his praises in? He grounds it in the keeping power of the Lord. At the beginning of this letter, Jude, of course, reminds the believers that they are kept for Jesus Christ. You remember in verse 1, those who are called, beloved, and kept. So now he's circling back to the same idea in which he explored at the beginning. That they will be kept by a God who is able to keep them from stumbling. And despite the real threats of false teaching, despite the real threats of a destructive life, the promise here is for the, is for the ones who are weary, for the ones who are wavering, the ones who may be near the flames. Because in the midst of this, Judah reminds these believers that God is able to keep them. And his grip on them is tighter than their ability to loosen it. His grip is so firm that we will be kept to the very end. He will keep them to the very end and present them, um, present them blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. In a hundred years from now, everyone in this room will stand before God. That's a certainty. Everyone in this room. And if you're trusted in Jesus, when you stand before him, you will not stand in terror or fear of judgment, but you will stand in joy. Not primarily because you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, but you will have joy because your faithfulness as a servant has only been brought about because of this faithfulness of a God who has kept you. And with Jude, he ends with a praise to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, I can't say the word, um, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Right? God is worthy to be praised. 
And this should be the... This, this is the thing that Jude writes to almost be in our ears as we finish this book. All right. All right. It is God who keeps us, despite all of the threats inside the church and outside of the church. It is God who keeps us. And this morning, we need to, uh, I need to ask these questions to you. Are you struggling in your faith? Are you battling sin or discouragement? Are you doubting or wavering? Hear the comforting words of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Both Jesus and the Father have firmly grasped you in their hands. Who could possibly separate you from the grip of both the Father and the Son? There is a safety and a comfort here for the struggling believer. But there are people in this room who haven't trusted in Jesus. They are, they are people who are near the flames. And this is a call for you to repent of your sins and to experience the keeping power of God. Who can separate us from, from the love of God? No one can, right? Not false teachers, not the, not the enemy, not Satan, not even yourself. Because if you are his, if you are his people, if you are his sheep, he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is good news for the struggling saint, knowing that what God has began in us, he will bring to completion. And knowing this, we keep ourselves in, 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 in the love of God, trusting that he will keep us forever. Amen. Let, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these last four weeks, Lord, that we have um, explored this um, short but um, fascinating book. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who keeps his children. Lord, we, we, Lord, we want to be faithful to you. We want to live a life, Lord, where we are keeping ourselves in the love of God. We want to build ourselves in the most holy faith. We want to um, be praying in the Holy Spirit. We want to wait, knowing all that you will come back. Father, we thank you for your keeping power. I pray, Lord, that anybody in this room who has yet to trust in, our, in, in you may turn from their sin this morning. And that they may, Lord, um, embrace and trust in your son, Jesus, who has died for them. And Lord, for the ones who are doubting, who are wavering, Lord, help us as a church to show mercy to them, to create environments where they can be honest with where they're at. And ultimately, Lord, I pray, Lord, that they may come to a place of renewed faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How about we rise to sing our final song? Actually, before that, I thought it might be good to actually read 
uh, the last two verses of this together. So how about we rise up and actually, to actually um, say this together? Um, I guess you can follow my lead. It says this. Now to him who is able to keep you from standing and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, 